Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Schoen and I am joined today by Maddie Lansdowne. Maddie and I had a great conversation diving into emotional eating, the dopamine addiction that many people have, and ultimately why we don't necessarily eat the way we know we should. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Maddie, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Hey, what's going on? I'm uh, I'm well. It's uh, morning here in Australia, so I'm bright and chirpy. How are you? <laughs> Overall doing well. I, as we talked before I hit record, I just took a nap because it's afternoon and I was tired. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? But I am fresh and ready to go now. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's make it happen. Let's do it. I'm excited to dive into this conversation. I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. But before we do that, a little bit about you. Who are you? Who am I? What a question. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> right. um, so I guess, you know, the the typical sort of intro is that I'm a scientist, uh, worked as a medical scientist for many years. Um, I'm a nutritionist and I'm an emotional eating coach. Uh, so I work with women, us- usually sort of in the 40 to 60 range. I sort of work with mums mostly um, on, yeah, emotional eating, getting control of their health and uh, doing that in a way that is as anti-diet culture as we can be without also having no structure at all. So there's a there's a happy medium in there somewhere because um, interestingly, and it's probably a lot of the people that you work with too, have spent you know, so many years on different diets and yo-yoing in and out of weight loss and in and out of gut health problems and in and out of self-confidence problems. And so um, along my journey, I basically, you know, I started working in hospitals and laboratories um, in research and just realized that it didn't matter the health advice people were given, whether it was cancer advice, whether it was diet advice, whether it was whatever, they just struggled to implement it. And and sort of when I went down the path of um, starting as the medical scientist in the cancer hospital, and then I was like, oh, obesity leads to disease. Like in, it leads to cancer, it leads to all of these different things. So I'm going to become a nutrition expert. So I did that. Um, and I got a couple of nutrition degrees. And then I got there and started lecturing everybody on what to eat. And they were like, we already know, Maddie. We already know. Um, and I've spoken in multiple countries and different retreats and like, um, you know, like uh, wellness events and conferences. And everybody knew that meat and vegetables was good and that chocolate for breakfast was not a good idea. Like everybody knew that already. So then I was like, if the nutrition advice is not the thing that's really required, like what's the next layer? And the next layer is that psychology and the you know, I help people answer the question, why can't I stick to a diet or why can't I do what's good for me? Because most people actually know what to do. Generally speaking, like they could make significant improvement in their life. The question is, why don't I execute on that? So, and I'm sure it's a very difficult question to answer, but as a general, is there a main reason on why people don't execute or is it very individual from person to person? Yeah, I mean, it varies from person to person, but I think it like the broad answer that would encompass almost everybody is that it comes down to a set of belief systems about themselves, Um, whether that be they have an uh, affinity or an addiction to sugar or whether they use sugar to sugar or vegetable oil or, you know, unhelpful foods to nourish themselves or nurture themselves or cope with stress or deal with a childhood trauma. Um, And so not everybody has a childhood trauma, like necessarily, like a lot of people can 
backdate the reason that they use sugar as a comfort or a nurture tool to a particular traumatic event. Um, and then, you know, it's just, we're not really taught emotional literacy as children or as adults because our parents didn't really have those skills, most of us anyway. And so instead, the brain works on this situation of how can I outsource it as fast as possible because that's less work for the brain to do. And so everything we've ever learned that we know how to do really well without thinking, the brain loves that system. So as soon as we find some coping mechanism to deal with this emotional situation or trauma or uncomfortable feeling, and if that's sugar or anything with sugar, then the brain's like, great, we can cope with this emotion without having to think about it too much, without having it to put it into, put it into the conscious mind where we might end up with tears or overwhelm or not being able to do anything. We can just put it back into the subconscious mind and unconsciously eat this food, which nurtures this unconscious emotion that's sitting back behind there. Um, and amazing the cost is obviously if you do that every single day or you know every time it comes up for decades you have a significant health problem um and so yeah getting back to the initial question i think the thing that f underpins everyone is it just a set of belief systems about themselves and about the way that they engage with the world that leads to these choices so how do we start breaking down these belief systems that probably could have been ingrained since we were you know, five or six years old for some people, I'm sure. Yeah, no, totally. Well, the a lot of our belief systems are embedded before the age of seven. Um, and so that's because of this, like, there's a shift in the structure of the brain from the ages of zero to seven. And it's why um, when we're much younger, or any for anyone that's got kids, you might know a period of time where your kids had imaginary friends. Um, and that is before the age of seven, because their brain waves are not yet concrete. And so they fluctuate in and out of what we would call material reality, the kind of things that adults can only access in a dream. When you're under seven, you can access that in, in conscious awareness. And so that's the time where kids have imaginary friends because their dream brain, brain waves are actually active whilst they're awake. And so because they're so susceptible to like all of this brain development in that time, a lot of the belief systems that they unconsciously absorb from their parents or their grandma or whoever the parental figures are at home, their guides, uh, they, they absorb them without even really knowing. And so the first step um, to working on any of this stuff is literally to become aware of it. Um, and it's like, you know, you don't know what you don't know, or I can't fix what I can't fix. And it's the analogy that I like to use is basically like, it's like driving your car down the motorway and the car breaks down and you get out and you just look at the car and you're like, the car's broken. And it's like, but which part is broken? There are so many parts of the car, right? If we never lift the hood, we can't fix it. We might be like, oh, the car's not running. I can see some tires. I'm just going to replace the tire. And then you replace the tire or the wheel and it, the car's still broken because you haven't lifted the hood to be like, which actual component is, is the reason that we're not moving forward. And it's the same, same with us. It's like, we don't know what we don't know. So we have to reflect on our past we have to lift the hood on our life um, and dig into yeah what's happened all the deep stuff that really will un and we learn so much in this process and it can be confronting and again like you know a lot of people sort of tie everything back to so some, some kind of trauma um, the answer could literally be I'm a victim of marketing because companies spend billions of dollars brainwashing you and hijacking the dopamine pathways in your brain like 
it can literally be that simple. But also for many people, it is trauma and it is pain and it is comfort and it is stress. And it's a life that they really didn't want for themselves that they're trying to soothe themselves from. So we have to lift, lift the lid on the hood. <laughs> now, I know, at least from talking with people who haven't really, maybe they've worked on it a little bit, but not totally, but they still very much yo-yo back and forth. They do great for a while and they fall mm. off and they, they gain all the way back and plus more. How do we start like working through all that as far as like we think are really good and then all of a sudden, oh, never mind, everything like everything fell apart again and we're back to right where we were when we thought we were better. Like, how do we start how do we break all these patterns when we think we're good but we're not? Yeah, I think it's got a lot to do with the way that we go into it. Like we've we've been programmed and particularly women like have been programmed for this, you know, this idyllic body image or version of themselves that the the media portrays and um, like sexualized advertising and marketing portrays and porn portrays as well, which is such a massive contributor to this, you know, problem of self-identity and body image. And um, I think the first thing is to, like the way that you go into a dietary change or a nutrition plan or a wellness shift is how it's going to, you're going to set yourself up for the long term. So if you dive off the, you know, the cliff one day and it's like, all right, throw out all of the chocolate, never look at wine again, uh, buy 400 kilograms of kale and only eat that. Like if you do this extreme behavior, then you can expect at some point you will go extreme back in the other direction because that's the behavior set you've set yourself up for and likely the history you've got. Cause it's like, and go. And if, if we've got this all or nothing thinking, uh, then we're, we're going to be all out as well. Because interesting, interestingly, a lot of people describe themselves as all in or all out people. But the story that follows that is I've never been able to stick to anything. So the question is, are you really an all in or all out person? Or is that just something that you're telling yourself to comfort yourself for the poor decisions you've made? Right. Because if you're really all in, we wouldn't be having this conversation because you would have gone all in once and never come out, <laughs> right? Um, and so, which which is, you know, and some of this stuff is confronting when you're confronting your personality because it might be like, well, actually all in or all out thinking is a strategy for self-sabotage because when I'm all out, I can say, oh yeah, like, oh, you know, I'm busy. I'm just out. Like, you know, I'm just, I can't, I can't be bothered with that. It's a justification for the lack of results, lack of commitment, that type of thing. So we don't want to start from that place. We want to start. And I, I have this little mantra that people parrot back to me all the time from my podcast is the one tweak a week. So you should make one small change at a time nail it like nail it and make it normal and then move to the next one because the unfortunate reality of going on a wellness journey is it's not going to be six weeks it's not going to be 28 days like unless you're at the very end of that journey and it's like you've been working for two years before you get on stage and you're in the last month of it that's the only time it's going to work in 28 days you know or you know whatever it is you're only going to take the first few steps on what will be a multiple year journey so we have to realize that in those years and months and weeks real life's going to happen so you if you're going to jump off the cliff and you can't sustain that for the next few months or weeks or years or decades then we, we've got to set the whole system up to factor in real life and that's why it needs to be one small change at a time the goal should not be to lose 100 pounds it should to be live life as a healthy person because that person then embodies 
a, a different set of beliefs and behaviors, which naturally results in a healthy body weight. And that's a long-term commitment. So we've really got to change our thinking around how we begin this process of change. I love all of that. Now, I know you mentioned the beginning, you like the way you work with people is like the lifestyle change, but not a diet or not least that mindset. How do we find that happy medium of eating healthy, but not necessarily getting rid of all of those comfort foods that like, because we all have our bad days that we just want to sit on the couch and (laughs) veg, you know, so we all have those days. So how do we find that happy medium of eating healthy, living a healthy, healthy lifestyle, but also allowing those situations to happen. Yeah. I love that question because you're right. Real, as I just said, right. Real life's going to happen and real life might involve wine and chocolate and pizza and all of those things. And which brings up a question like, is emotional eating always bad? Because a lot of families connect over food. A lot of cultures get their identity from food. And so I think, I think you bring up a really good point is that we're all going to have days where we want to do that, even not not necessarily because it's a bad day, because we want to connect with our kids or we want to do a family tradition that's really meaningful to everyone. And maybe it's been around for generations, you know, like this recipe or whatever it is. And so I think it's it's important to factor that stuff in. And, and it comes back to the understanding self and understanding the parts of the car or the parts of the system, because it's obviously okay to factor this in and be like, Friday nights, it's, out, it's date night. And I'm never giving date night up. So, you know, that's just the way it goes. And what I do for myself is that when I'm at home, uh, it's basically perfect, you know, perfect nutrition, but I have absolutely no rules when I catch up with friends for brunch or go to a friend's birthday or anything like that. There's just no nothing there. And so what that means is that I have to find my happy health goal. And it's the same for you, everybody listening is that it's not, if you go to a gym, say you hang out with a personal trainer, it might be like in the gym context with the personal trainer in front of you, who's super ripped because he's, he or she is lifting weights all day, which you're not, not doing because you've got a job and you've got kids. Um, but in that context, and you're surrounded by people with a similar goal, it might be like, yeah, I do want to live fi- uh, lose 50 pounds. That's the goal. Yes, yes, yes. I love being here. And then you leave that context and then you get to Friday night again and you're like, oh, I do really love date night. It's so meaningful, right? And it really adds happiness to my life. So you might have to go back to the gym on Monday and say, actually, my happy life goal is only 30 pounds because the truth is that I'm not going to give these other things up and that's okay because we need to factor them in. We also need to be aware though of when we're hacking, we're trying to break the system by giving ourselves permission to enjoy something every single day, right? We're obviously breaking the system there and we're, and that, and I would say that's our inner child taking advantage of us basically. Um, it's like it's figured out a way to kindly give permission to enjoy comfort food way too often (laughs) right so there's a really important um awareness piece that needs to happen there of like and and you will intuitively know am i trying to hack the system or am i prioritizing connection with people or whatever event is really important in my family or life and and you'll know if you're trying to break the system (laughs) definitely um on that note for breaking the system you know i a lot of people work in offices of some sort where there might be donuts or chips or, you know, all the foods around. 
Mm-hmm. And eventually, once it becomes a habit to avoid those things, you know, it can become really simple. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, how do we start to break that habit when it's just like, oh, look, it's right there in front of me. It's so easy to grab. And I have to walk all the way to the fridge back there to get my healthy food. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because so many people identify as all in or all out. Um, and I'm exactly the same. And pretty much everyone that's ever done any of my programs is the same. So we have to acknowledge that if that's the way you are, then we have to work with that. Like there's nothing that's going to stop this intense, you know, commitment or diving into things. And it's the same with that stuff in front of you. I'm the same. It's all in my face. If it's in, it's, it's in the vicinity, right? Like sugar is addictive. I love it. It tastes good. It makes me happy for a very short period of time. And then I feel terrible. And no matter how much I, you know, you think about the long-term consequences, it, the brain, it's very difficult for the brain to prioritize long-term benefit over short-term pleasure. So we have to create conditions of success. We have to create an environment that works in our favor, that it's more difficult to do unhelpful things. Uh, and so that might mean that it just cannot be in the house. It cannot be in the office. You need to have a difficult conversation with someone about how things need to be set up or you know what to include you in or what gets ordered for lunch or whatever it is, right? There's there's unfortunately steps and this is we've got to grow we're trying to change that's why everybody's listening to this podcast right is that there's going to be some uncomfortable stuff you've got to do in order to create a healthier environment otherwise the truth is we're pack animals and um, anyone that's done like a health degree or a nutrition degree or a medical degree there's a part of that where you learn about social determinants of health Um, and it's often sort of said that you're your postcode or your zip code is more influential than your genetic code because as pack animals, we we behave in the same way as the pack around us, our family, our um, social group, our, our workplace. And so we, because we fear judgment and um, being pushed out of the circle and we have a core foundational need as, a, as an animal to belong to a tra- like a tribe or a pack that we will eat the food to be accepted. We will not lose weight in fear of not fitting into our family anymore. And I've had a couple of clients like that where we we peeled the onion and we got to the core, which was like, oh, if I become healthy and skinny, I'm actually going to be the only person in my family and everybody will pick on me and I'll be the center of attention and I'll be getting negative comments and that there's a huge risk to being a part of the tribe that we identify with. So part of this is learning to navigate these conversations and um and environments and help you know help people understand why we're going on this journey and and sometimes they're going to be super emotional conversations because if you just say oh i'm trying to lose weight that's kind of not enough we need to go like we need to go deeper why is this really meaningful maybe you still want to be around for the kids maybe when you drink at the social you know gathering you feel awful the next day and you feel like you miss your kids soccer game you're not really present for them you're a terrible parent and you want to spend just 30 seconds figuring out a, a little script uh, of meaning i call it the script of meaning and communicate that to the people around you and everybody will literally say fair enough like because you've really gone deep and anyone that doesn't well you just you've got to upgrade your circle and that's also easier said than said than done but if you're surrounded by people that are constantly tearing you down, it might be time to renovate your social circle, which is not going to happen overnight and is super difficult, but you'll be better for it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let's take a quick break to talk about Power Insole. When I first heard about this product, I was automatically turned off because of the name. I thought it helped support the foot, which was a huge no for me. I quickly found out I was wrong. 
Power Insole is a two by two gel pad that goes inside your shoe that works on your body's cells to help improve your recovery and your performance. I've been testing this out for a couple weeks now and really am amazed by the results. Like my body just feels better. My legs don't feel as heavy. And one really cool thing is you can put it on an area that's maybe injured or just achy and that pain and stiffness goes away quickly, or at least it did for me, which I thought was awesome. If you are looking for just a simple, easy way that you can enhance your recovery and your performance, I really encourage you to check out Power Insole and give it a test ride for yourself. You can find more information about them and pick up one for yourself at getyourfixpt.com slash powerinsole. And if you use code getyourfix at checkout, you can save 10%. You can also go to my partner's page, getyourfixpt slash partners and find the link directly to Power Insole as well as all my other partners. And now let's get back to the show. It's, I always find it fascinating that like because of the way majority of society is with eating junk, drinking, all the things, which, you know, there's time and place for all of it mm-hmm. in moderation. Um, but I always find it fascinating that it's like to be healthy, like you're looked on, looked upon very oddly or weird when you go out places that compared and it's like, this is real food. Like, why is it weird? <laughs> That's such a good point. And I think it comes back to that, that pack tribe thing, which is like, I wouldn't do that. Or most people wouldn't do that. So we're judging the one people, one person that is doing that in the, in the group. Um, or that's like inconveniencing the waiter. Cause I need gluten free. Cause when I eat gluten, I get bloated and it hurts. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's just so, so bizarre. I agree. And it's like only, you know, in our grandparents generation or even parents, like even I grew up, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. I grew up with real food. It wasn't that long ago that real food was normal, right? Or And you'd go to a friend's place and that would be pretty common as well. Like getting takeout or fast food was like, that was a treat. You know, if, if that happened, it was like, we're going out to do this thing. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> Where, so it wasn't that long ago that real food was normal. And it was normal before that for like a hundred million years or however long we've been here, right? Yeah, totally. That's a great <laughs> point. How fast that transition has happened. Cause yeah, I'm 40 and it's same thing. Like I grew up and it was normal food on the table at my house, at my friend's house. Yeah. I think it's like the internet has, has really perpetuated that because instead of, you know, if you think about when we grew up, right. It's like you would drive past maybe a billboard. You might have the TV on at night only, and you might see a couple of ads. Whereas now literally most days I get ads for KFC on YouTube. Like and so we're we're now hit with this ad sugar and fast food advertising hundreds of thousands of times per day. Whereas we used to be reminded just you know twenty years ago that these these businesses existed maybe twice a day, maybe three times a week. Do you know what I mean? So I think the internet's just allowed to to put these things in front of us. Then add in you know Instagram, which really began in that world of show me your food, basically, uh, right? And then so and lots of people are always talking about food. And like, so it, I think social media advertising and marketing has just really leveraged the attention span of people to now sort of dive off the off the sugar um, cliff into pizza and chips and <laughs> all the things, right? That's a very great point. 
diving into the marketing and the processed foods a bit, um, I don't know the full details on, I'm sure you know more about how all of these companies is like, they have their taste testers and their texture testers and their everything else to make the perfect product to make it addictive for people. Yeah, sadly. Yeah, they've got, they pay so many psychological engineers to put people's, they literally spend millions of dollars putting people in MRI machines, scan their brain and feed them the different versions of the recipe that they're, you know, currently experimenting with in the lab um, and different ingredients and look at how the brain lights up. Um, and they're, what they're looking for is the, the basically the general aim is to get to as close as you can towards an addictive response in the brain. Um, and, and like a craving that means you want to go back. And, um, there's a book actually called the Dorito effect. And that's because it was discovered from behind the scenes. It was somebody, you know, a worker that went rogue in the, um, you know, the, the sort of research side of the sugar industry was that they basically put in Dorito, a bag of Doritos, every, Every ninth chip had five times the amount of flavoring. And the reason that they did that was because in a, in one single packet of, of Doritos, you would go in and it, when you found it, it would trigger the same response that gambling addiction does. So you just keep going back and going back and you empty the bag and then you, you want to... And then obviously the sooner that you buy another bag, right? And it gets to the point where you know your behavior with Doritos. So you end up buying multiple bags when you buy them, right? Um, and, it's, and they, yeah, discovered that this, this particular ratio triggered the, the same response that gambling addicts get at the casino of like the next game. I'm going to win the next one, the next one. Um, and so unfortunately, yeah, these companies are spending millions and you know, we, we all, if we all owned businesses, we'd all be doing the most we could to try and get people to buy our product, which is what they're doing with their resources. It's just, you know, arguably not doing it in, you know, it's not a good thing to be doing for the humanity. <laughs> However, you know, I try and understand them in the sense of like they're business people. I have a business. We're all trying to, you know, make the most progress, but I just think what they're doing is not great. They probably think what I'm not doing is not great. <laughs> right. Probably true. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah. And we've got to apply that to everything, including social media. Social media has the same engineers that are scanning brains and watching human behavior in regards to how they interface with the app design, the, the notifications and all of this stuff, sugar and social media. It all comes back to dopamine, which is like the thing that people are hyper addicted to uh, in this day and age. And dopamine is your happy hormone. It basically drives a lot of your behavior. So it drives, you know, feeling good after the gym, but it also drives your desire to perpetually pick up your phone, to go to the to the fridge or to the pantry to get food when you're bored or you're having any kind of emotion. You're like, you want to push that emotion down with dopamine because dopamine feels good. Um, but up until the last sort of 50 to 80 years, getting dopamine you used to have to put in effort and work. Whereas now we don't have to put in any, we just have to walk around the corner to the 24 hour 7-Eleven and we can just fill our whole life with dopamine in a matter of minutes. Um, and it's the same with Netflix and Facebook and Instagram. And so, so yeah, unfortunately these companies, are, yeah, using amazing modern science for evil, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. So speaking of the addiction side of things, you know, we talked about the emotional side of things, but talking about the dopamine addiction side of things, how do we start breaking that? Because obviously we all know addictions are hard to break. Um, dopamine, sugar, you know, those things included. So where do we, how do we start breaking those patterns? Yeah, that's a good one. Like, yeah, addiction, there's um, 
there's a few TED talks that talk about addiction being a, a, a massive lack of connection. And I think that um, that's got a lot to do with the sugar conversation too, because often we're using using sugar to comfort or as a companion, you know, to make us feel okay, um, or the, on the other side of it, to punish, to, to harm. And, and both of those things are come back to that core belief system about self um, and, and, you know, whatever caused that situation to exist. So, uh, it's interesting too in the food and sugar space. There's two ways of thinking. So I, you know, I kind of call myself an emotional eating coach, but there's like emotional eating and a, and sugar addiction. And if you talk to either one of those professionals, they will call all problems the same thing. <laughs> so, um, so it's, so there's overlap because I've never seen them not come together. Do you know what I mean? Like there's of course emotional drivers behind addiction and there's of course addictive elements to eating sugar because we know sugar is addictive to the cell. Um, so, so yeah, I think it comes back to those belief systems and, and unfortunately with a lot of people, they need to get so uncomfortable before they are willing to make change. They need to have a scary event happen. They need to be shocked into something. It could be a diagnosis. It could be a loved one dying that they see themselves in. You know, it's very hard for people to, you know, get motivated to make a significant change with things that make them feel good a lot of the time until they realize the true cost of their decisions, um, which sucks. It sucks that, you know, we can't get everybody to change before they get to the pain in their life. But, um, you know, in some ways you could argue that's just, you know, the human journey is that, you know, you struggle and, it's the, the point of that struggle is to find happiness and find, you know, what you need in life. But yeah, I think addiction and emotional eating all fall under the same kind of space. I guess the difference is too with addiction is that like, if you can do identify as a moderator or an abstainer. So for me, I'm a, I'm an abstainer. Like I just, I just can't have it in the house. Like if it's, if it's in the vicinity, it's in my face. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, whereas I look at those people that can moderate and they're like, oh yeah, I've had a block of chocolate in the, in the pantry for, it's been there for two weeks. I just have like a square every now and then. I'm just like, how? You're a wizard. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so if you identify as, as an abstainer, you probably err more on the side of that addiction piece. Um, still going to have lots of emotional aspects to it, but you know, and then you've just got to set your the agreements that you have up with yourself in in regards to managing abstaining. Like for me, the abstinence is from not having it in the house, not having it in the car, but I can enjoy it when I catch up with friends. Some people need to abstain forever, right? Just like heroin or just like, you know, um, alcohol, that type of stuff. But if you can moderate, then, well, I'm jealous, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't figured that one out yet, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. It's it's a tr it's a tricky one, but it seems to be a personality thing. Like there just seems to be some people that are that are good at it, irrelevant of their traumatic past, and there seems to be some people, well, most people, which are addicted because sugar's addictive. <laughs> sugar is very addictive, and you know, and I've known several people who got off sugar and had you know those full withdrawal symptoms down to yeah. even a rash, and it's pretty fascinating what ha what can happen when you're so addicted to sugar and get yourself oh, off of it totally which which one are you are you an abstainer or a moderator i'm a moderator oh can, i'm jealous I, I can let stuff sit in my house for long periods of time <laughs> you well you're the wizard <laughs> <laughs> i am the wizard <laughs> oh that's funny no, and I really, I used to, uh, growing up, I ate a lot more sugar, but now it's just kind of a take it or leave it thing, but yes, salty, yes. 
is like if I go to anything, it's more salty. And then gotcha. like nuts and seeds are basically my vice. So yeah, nut butters, nut butters are good, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Almond butter, oh, so good, so good. Uh, yeah, I love those kind of things too. But I actually, the funny thing is that it's kind of the same. They're they they can't just just can't be here because I love them so much. And the catch is too in this like that I find for myself, but it seems a lot of people and a lot of clients is that in this working from home generation that we've created over the last you know it's it's just so easy to go to the cupboard like Mm -hmm. you know whereas at least in a work environment you would be controlled by one the work you need to do two a bit of social judgment which is you know not always bad because it's keeping us in you know behaving in the right way um and so yeah this new work from home i can hide away i'm wearing clothes that don't remind me that i'm expanding you know um like there's a lot of little things there that really just make it so simple and interestingly like i discovered for myself that like you know there's there's kind of a ratio of the amount of times that i need to work from a cafe or a library um in order for me to not sort of slip down that slippery slope of like not caring and forgetting that I'm a member of society. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, Oh, I'm actually a part of a community of humans that live in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so easily done though. Just kind of hole up in your little cave. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, and people might need to do that. Right. If, if part of the awareness is that it's just not enough barriers to entry, it comes back to where we kind of started is creating conditions of success. And if conditions of success look like finding an accountability partner to meet at the library with, you know, for two days a week or four hours of every day, you know, do that. Like, it'll be also great for your social and human connection and it'll be fulfilling in a different way. But, you know, if you've got to create a a certain situation in your life so your health benefits, then do that like and make it worthwhile make it cup filling so that you know do it with people that feel great that have similar views that also want to be healthy um so that we can create that environment and um you know like i do a a bit of co-working as well with different people and it's great because there's work benefits because i actually don't procrastinate at all um but there's also health benefits because nobody's like you know going to the cupboard every five minutes right uh so you know it's back to that creating that environment that helps you thrive Something that came to mind, and I'm curious about what you've noticed, you know, working from home, having the fridge right there, the cupboard right there to get whatever you want is one thing, but how much of just being so isolated over the past couple of years has contributed to just more eating as well? Not Not just because things are there, but because we have lost that social aspect. Oh, I think you're totally on point there i think that and there's a couple of layers to that too which is one we're sad and depressed about the state of the world and for some people depending either side of the pandemic vaccine conversation everybody's sad right it's like i'm terrified that 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 there's a virus out there that's going to kill me or i'm terrified that the government is suppressing my freedom right um and that everybody believes this kind of thing so it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum everybody's disconnected and emotionally um down about the situation and so and and that's kind of you know bleeding into 2022 at least here in australia is that there's like this hangover from the last two years like yeah we're all back to normal but people are still kind of getting their social confidence back this you know they go out a few times in the week and they really find that they've got low energy and their energy has been zapped because 
yeah, the last two years have been so isolating. And so I think, yeah, there's a couple of things, which is I'm eating because I'm sad and depressed about the world. I'm also eating because the barrier to entry is so low. Like it's there all day and I can just, and interestingly, you know, all of the foods for the last two years that have been, um, you know, discounted or on special or half price were always chocolate because again, <laughs> They know exactly how human brains work. And so when there's tragedy and crisis, they made all of the worst foods um, discounted because they knew that sales would go through the roof. Actually, here in Australia, Kellogg's, which is the cereal brand, um, they basically had their, I think it was 2021, the first quarter. They had um, the last year, they announced that the highest sales in their history and they'd gone up, not just like a couple of percent, but think of this billion dollar company. They went up 23% more in sales oh um, for, yeah, their cereal products. And it's just that, you know, we're just sitting at home. So um, not to mention that, yeah, we're not in society also being controlled and governed by the conditions of being a member of society, which is like the office thing, right? It's like, that's, it's not always a bad thing to be conditioned by the way that we should behave in a social setting. Because imagine if we went outside or to a, like, you know, and everybody was just eating always like, that would be super weird and bizarre, right? Um, but we're doing that at home in private. And and it, whether it's nurturing old emotions or current emotions, um, like we've, yeah, we've got to start making this shift. And just again, one tweak a week, uh, moving towards something that is more helpful and more fulfilling. And if that's not working from home and asking to come back to the office, um, at least part-time, and that helps, like, I think it's going to be so important because that human connection, we did, I don't think we realized the importance of the human connection with the internet coming in until the last two years. We realized how empty we all felt without hugging people and having skin to skin contact, which produces a cocktail of hormones. You can't get that from a zoom call. Do you know what I mean? And Uh like, you know, loved ones dying on their own without us by their side and missing all these really meaningful events. And, you know, of course that just creates even more negative emotions that we need to nurture. So yeah, getting back to human interaction, I think is so incredibly important. Well, we've discussed a lot of different things today. Is there anything else we haven't talked about that you feel is really important to bring up? Mm, Good question. I mean, there's a million topics that are important to talk about, but um, I mean, in the context of this conversation, I think it's just like ownership is, you know, like taking ownership for your own health and your own life. And, And it sounds like a lot to be like, oh, I've got to change everything. But most people I, I know are already aware of a few areas of their life that they could improve on. Um, you know, they don't necessarily need to listen to a podcast or pay anybody. They're aware of it already. So I would just say, just pick one thing, take ownership, just be like, I'm going to, I'm going to make a change in this one small area. Don't do everything because you'll get overwhelmed and you'll just give up on it all in a couple of weeks. Um, just do one thing better from, you know, from the point of this conversation, you know, you're listening to this, just pick one thing. And when you feel like you've nailed it, pick another thing. And then just, it might take five years but it's better than, you know, trying 55 diets and getting nowhere in that time, as opposed to chipping away at it slowly and being somewhere radically different in five years from now. I think it's a great reminder and a great way to close it out. Cause yeah, that one small thing is super important because we fail new year's resolutions because we do everything at once. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, Maddie, if someone has more questions for you, wants to find you, or maybe don't want some help, where can they um, find you? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I've got a Facebook group called the Healthy Mums Collective. So you can come and hang out there. Um, if you're a mum or a woman, I mean, any women can come and join, but we just call it the mums because mums seem to be most of our clients. Um, so that's a free group. Um, MaddieLansdown.com is my website. So you can check that out. And I also have a podcast called How to Not Get Sick and Die. So come and listen to that. I love that name. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Maddie, thank you so much for your time today. I greatly appreciate this. Thanks so much. I appreciate this conversation. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and got some great information from it. If you are looking for more great information, I encourage you to go check out getyourfixpt.com. There you can gain access to blog posts, other podcast interviews, my online programs, and the race prep masterclass, which is for you if you are a chronically injured runner with foot and ankle issues. Once again, that is all at getyourfixpt.com. And I hope you join us next week for another great episode.